right, well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing? All right, hey, a couple weeks ago, we started a brand new series that's really all about how to fight heart disease, okay? But not necessarily the kind that the, uh, the American Heart Foundation is trying to combat. Uh, I'm talking about the kind of heart disease that can completely derail your life. See, the Bible, it talks a lot about your heart as the center of your emotional, your intellectual, your moral activity. And it's something that we all intrinsically know. It's why we sing songs about our heart. It's why we, we talk about what's inside of our heart. It's, it's in something that we just, it's hardwired inside of us to understand how this works. Um, but the idea is that, that what's inside is eventually going to find its way out. And so whatever is like living inside of you is, is no matter how hard you try and like keep it at bay or maybe how hard you try and fight against it, it's eventually going to find its way out. And so either you have something that's going to be life-giving, that's going to really communicate to everybody else like, hey, I've got my stuff together, or you're going to have something that is tearing you down on the inside. And so the question is, what is inside your heart? Now, God is very concerned about this. That's one of the reasons why one of the early church leaders, a guy named Paul, he wrote this list in Galatians 5, 22 through 23 that says, but the Holy Spirit, he produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Basically, he's building these things in your heart. Hey, guys, can you turn off the, the hazer? Is that all right if you can get that thing turned off? Um, produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. And here's what we're doing. We're taking that list, we're taking each one of these attributes one by one, and we're seeing what it looks like when either God grows that inside of us or when we try and stop it. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about what it means when you have either a lot or a little peace in your life. Okay, so I want you to picture this for a moment. It's Saturday morning. And it's one of those Saturday mornings where you, like, you don't have to get out of bed. And you're just kind of laying there. And you start thinking back on that awesome barbecue you had the night before. And you know, that smell of charcoal is still in the air. And uh, you're just thinking about that delicious burger that you just wrapped your lips around. And, uh, but, then, but then that feeling starts to overtake you. You know what I'm talking about. You've got that, you've got that itch on your calf. And you want to reach down and you want to scratch it, but you know you shouldn't. But you do anyway and just start, just start working at it until eventually, like, like, you're breaking the skin. Like, you're just going at it. You just, and you just think to yourself, if I can just scratch this until, until the itch goes away, I'll, I'll be good. But then what you learn is that it's going to come back worse. It's funny how this works, isn't it? You get a mosquito bite and you know the drill. You know that despite how much it would feel good to scratch that mosquito bite, you shouldn't. But you end up doing it anyway, and it gets worse. What's interesting is that stress and anxiety, they work very similarly. You want to worry, right? You know that you should not worry. You worry anyway. And in the process, you feel worse. Now, I want to raise the blood pressure in the room for a minute. So uh, if you guys would just indulge with me on this, because um, I think that this whole talk is going to be better received if we can transport our minds to, uh, to a place where we just feel a little bit of anxiety for a second. So I want everybody to just like hold up your hand, okay? Hold up your hand right like this. It's not a weird like spiritual thing. This is just like 
part of the exercise. All right, so you have five fingers on your hand, and you're going to lift up the number of fingers that represent the anxiety or the stress that you feel with these situations. One being like, it doesn't bother you one bit. Five is, I would sell my firstborn child to you know, like just taste uh, sweet, stress-free release. Um, so here's, here's the first one. You walk into a restaurant, and lo and behold, it is your ex from college. And she's wearing that sweatshirt that you let her borrow, that she never gave back. But you're walking in now with your new girlfriend. What level of stress do you feel? Some of you are like, that's five. That's a, that's a level five thing. Okay, two, all right, we see a few of those. All right, here's one. You walk in to a restaurant, and it's that person who texted you that you never texted back. What level of stress do you feel? All right. Hey, real quick, in the back, hey, Justin, hit 999, enter, and then turn, that, turn the hazer all the way off, bud. Um, all right. Here's the third one. I'm here all week. All right. Um, here's the third one. You've gotten into a fight with your mom, and you've both said some things that you kind of regret, and you're not really sure when you're going to fix things. What level of anxiety are you feeling on that one? Okay. How about this one? Tomorrow, you're giving a public presentation in front of a crowd of a thousand people. How do you feel? <laughs> Have you ever heard Seinfeld's bit on this about how, um, second week in Rome, quoting Seinfeld. He's like, you know, they actually say that public speaking is the number one fear in the United States, even above death, which means that at a funeral, more people would rather be in the box than like giving the eulogy. Um, all right, how about this one? You go to the mailbox tomorrow, and you have a hospital bill that you thought your insurance was going to cover, but you find out they're not, and now you're on the hook for $5,000. All right, how about this one? You can't sleep at night, because every time you lay down, you start like rehearsing and thinking back on all the mistakes you've made over the last 20 years of your life. What level of anxiety? Okay, I get it, right? You know, it's funny, stress is such an incredible force in our lives. And it's, it's amazing, though, that stress, out of all the things that we know are bad for us, we still wear it on our chest like a badge of honor, don't we? You know, because like somebody will ask you, how are things? And this will be your answer. Super busy. You know, it's just kind of a really stressful season of life. Like, what other harmful, like, activity or emotion would we, would we just proclaim so proudly? Like, nobody's going to ask you, how you doing? And you say, you know what? I've been eating some really bad stuff lately. You know, I'm going to tell you, 80% of my diet is fast food. So, um, but what we do is we, we, we carry stress around like, like it's awesome. And science is going deeper and deeper on just the effects that chronic stress can have on our bodies. And here's some things that they're finding. That if you carry stress, like, repeatedly, and it never seems to find a release, um, you are more likely to suffer from depression, obviously anxiety. You're more prone to cardiovascular disease, including heart disease. You're more likely to have a stroke. You're more likely, more likely to have low energy. Which is funny because the next one is also you're more likely to have insomnia. So even when you don't feel like you can do anything, you can never sleep, right? People who carry chronic stress around, they experience aches and pains. And there's a whole lot more to it as well. But did you know that stress actually has a little brother? And um, really, here's another way to look at it. It's, it's stress 
with the volume turned down, and it goes by the name of discontentment. Now, discontentment looks a lot of different ways. It might be for you that it's like it's scrolling Instagram and just feeling that envy for that house you just can't afford, or um, maybe it's walking the mall and just keeping like a mental list of all the stuff that you wished you could own. Maybe it's like searching job openings just to imagine what your life could be like with a different life. Um, maybe you just find yourself daydreaming about how different your life would have turned out if he had become your husband instead of the guy that you were stuck with. And what happens when discontentment gets louder, we call it stress. And when it starts to hurt our ears, we call it anxiety. And then when it's deafening, we call it panic. And here's the reality that so many of us have figured out, but still we find ourselves trying to disprove, and that's this. Chasing contentment is a carrot you will never catch. Chasing after contentment is a carrot you will never catch. We run, after, uh, we, have to, we run after contentment all the time by trying to indulge it, you know, so sometimes what we do is we just say, it's like the mosquito bite, I'm just going to scratch it until it goes away, and we just start doing that, and um, maybe for some of you, you try and chase contentment, but you know like you can't get it, so what you do is you, you choose escapism, and escapism has a lot of different names. Sometimes it's substance abuse, but sometimes it's just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to binge watch TV every night to try and forget about all of my problems. Sometimes what we do is we distract ourselves. We say, I can't control this area of my life, so I'm going to control everything else. And there's a story I just want to tell you this morning about, um, about somebody who, who didn't experience peace. Somebody whose, whose discontentment was turned all the way up to 11. Where they just felt it go from stress to anxiety to panic. In fact, it's a story that if you're part of one of our growth groups, you talked about this last week. But it's worthy of going back into again. And 3,000 years ago, the northern tribes of Israel were just in a constant state of war with the Armenians. And the Armenians, they were, they were really a stronger nation than Israel. They had a better trained army than Israel, but they never could seem to get the upper hand. And the reason why was because this, Ish, uh, this Israelite prophet named Elisha. Now, Elisha is one of those figures that if you read about him in the book of 2 Kings, he almost has like these superhuman qualities about him. Like, you just read all these stories about like one time he makes an axe head float, another time he uh, like provides this oil and like flour to, uh, to a widow to where like she never goes hungry. Like, he raises a person from the dead. Like, he's, he's this person, as you read through his stories, you realize like there's, there's something incredible about him. Like, there's just the stories of, of just supernatural faith. And what happened is um, the king of Aram, the, the enemy to Israel, he, he would start strategizing and planning with his, with his generals, with his, with his army about how can we beat the Israelites. And he would say, I'm going to plan an ambush. So he started like, to plan this attack. And they would go to the location and the Israelites wouldn't be there. So they'd go back and they'd have another meeting. And he'd say, okay, that one didn't work. So he starts working on a different plan. He says, okay, we think they're going to be at this point. So what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to descend, descend upon them at this moment. We're going to take them out. And we're going to win the battle against the Israelites. And they would go to that place and the Israelites weren't, gonna be, weren't there. And the reason why is because God was telling Elisha, hey, you know, the king of Aram is planning an attack. Elisha would then go and report it to the king of Israel and say, don't take your people there. And he would move the people away. Now, the king of Aram, like, he starts getting really frustrated with this after a while. Because, like, seriously, what is the, like, what's the deal? You, you have the better trained army. You have more resources. You're really in a position where you could be very, very successful against the Israelites. But no matter how hard you try, 
you just can't get, seem to get the upper hand. Israelites always have the slip on you. So what he does is he, he pulls all of his generals together, all of his counselors, all, all the people that, that help comprise his military might. He says, guys, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills here. Like, who is the rat? Who's the traitor? Who's the person that's walking out of this room and going and reporting to the Israelites where we're going to go next? Because, look, one time, I get it. Like, maybe, maybe somehow something got, got mixed up. Maybe we got our poor information. But two times, that's not possible. Three times, I'm noticing a pattern. So what is it? Who is the rat? Now, his counselors and generals, knowing that their lives are on the line, they realize, like, we better give them an answer. And they'd heard the rumors. They kind of dismissed them at first, but... They're like, you know, maybe it's the time to tell him. So they say, King, here's the, dish, here's the issue. Here's the problem. The Israelites have this prophet named Elisha. And he's always telling the king of Israel where you're going to be. And here's the thing. He seems to even know the secrets that you tell yourself in the quiet of your own bedroom. And so the king of Aram, like beside himself, he says this in 2 Kings chapter 6, and if you want to turn in your Bible, if you just flip to the middle and start going to the left, you're eventually going to get to this book of 2 Kings. There's two of them, first and second. So you're going to be in the 2 Kings. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 6. If you're on your device, you can scroll. Uh, it's in the bottom third of the books. Uh, but this right here, this is 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 13. So this is what the king of Aram tells his counselors and his generals here uh, after they tell him, hey, you know what the problem is? It's Elisha. He says, go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. And the report came back. Elisha is at Dothan. So one night the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. And when the servant of the man of God got up early next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what are we going to do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Okay, time out, because I want to make sure you understand what happened. So the king of Aram, he's found out Elisha is at Dothan. So he sends horses, he sends chariots to surround the city. Elisha's servant gets up early the next morning. He walks outside, and what does he see around the city? Horses and chariots. And he's thinking, oh no, what are we going to do? See, what happened for him, he's just walked into the panic zone, Right? Like, this is putting all of your retirement into Bear Stearns in February 2008 just to watch them go belly up the next month, right? Like, this is getting lost in the mountains, pulling out your cell phone to try and, like, find help just to watch the power go to 0%, right? Like, this is, this is an impossible situation. This is, this is like having your front teeth knocked out of the, your head minutes before your wedding, right? Like, this is, like, there's no salvaging this one, Okay? Because here you have this army with, with tons of chariots, tons of horses. It doesn't matter. You can run, but they're going to catch you. Like, you think you can hide, they're going to find you. They have numbers. This great army, many horses, many chariots, has surrounded Dothan, and they are looking for you. So Elisha's servant, he runs back inside to talk to the prophet. And just keep in mind for a second. Like, this servant, he, he knows everything that's happening in Elisha's life. This isn't, this isn't a stranger to him. He knows, he knows that Elisha's been, like, spiritually wiretapping the king of Aram for the last several months. But for some reason, God doesn't seem to tip him off when, like, they surround your house. 
And for a servant, he's experiencing something that many of us who are warriors absolutely hate. Okay? Maybe you've been there. You have something that's going terribly wrong in your life. He's panicking, and he goes and tells the first person he can about it. And this first person that he tells should also be feeling panic. But it's not what he gets back, right? Like, if, you are, if you're a warrior, you hate this, right? You tell somebody the problem, and what's their response? They're calm. It acts like they don't care. There's potentially thousands of warriors hell-bent on your destruction, and Elisha can't even seem to be bothered about it. In fact, this is what he says in verse 16. This is what Elisha says back to his servant. He says, don't be afraid, Elisha told him. Like, oh good, that fixes everything, right? Like, this, thank you for that advice. Don't be afraid. Thousands of warriors surrounding us, but you know what? I'm good. And so, but Elisha doesn't stop there. He says this. He goes, you know, there's more on our side than on theirs. And I'm sure that in that moment, the servant was like, there's two of us. What are you talking about? There's more on our side than on theirs. There's two. Is Elisha stupid? Like, what is happening here? There's two of us, and there's a great army of horses and chariots over there. Now, horses and chariots, like, we hear that, and, like, I think if we thought about it, it we could see the significance. But this is, like, tanks and, like, fighter jets. This is cannons. Like, for that day and age, this was, like, the peak of military technology. To have horses and chariots surrounding you. Like I said, you cannot escape. You're stuck. You are not getting past this one. See, Elisha's servant, he was desperately lacking peace. Now, what does the word peace even mean? Like, besides being like the winning answer in every Miss America pageant, right? Like, you know, what's one thing you'd wish for the world? Well, I'd world peace, right? Like, yeah, I, like what does peace actually even mean? You know, in Hebrew, the word peace is translated from this word called shalom, which means wholeness, completeness, soundness, health, safety, prosperity, tranquility, security. Shalom has such a wider meaning than the English word does. You know, most fundamentally, shalom actually means reconciliation with God, but shalom also means reconciliation with others, and therefore it also means an inner peace as well. In fact, it's one of the reasons why this word shalom is used in Psalm 4.8, uh, which for some of you, this is like, this is your new life verse. Because in Psalm 4, it says, in peace, in shalom, I will lie down and sleep. It's amazing, isn't it? When you don't feel peace in your life, one of the first things that you lose is your sleep. You find yourself waking up stressed, you're replaying that conversation over and over. You're thinking about all the things that you need to do the next day. In Shalom, I will lie down and I will sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, will keep me safe. Peace is something that so many of us want, but it also feels so elusive. There's so many things that just are chipping away at it, isn't there? Like, you have some financial problems. Maybe you have health issues. Maybe you have a kid that's just driving you crazy. Maybe your boss is asking you to do something that he couldn't even do himself. 
All these things are chipping away at our peace. You know, Jesus also promised his followers that, that they could find peace on his last night before he went to the cross. He says this in John 16, 33. He says, I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And I'm not sure if Jesus' followers thought about this when he shared this thought with them that night. But they'd already experienced a bunch of trials and issues as they had followed Jesus for, for three years at this point. And I think about the night that they're on a boat together. And as they're on the Sea of Galilee, this storm sweeps down onto the waters and it starts to create these giant waves that are just throwing the boat this way and that way. And the wind is so strong that you can't put the sails up and the wind, the water is so strong that you can't put the anchor down. And they're just being tossed to and fro. And meanwhile, Jesus is just sleeping at the bottom of the boat. And I wonder if they thought about this on that, on that night that he shared with them that he wants to give us peace. And thinking about that night, when undoubtedly this thought just kept going through their mind over and over and over. I can have peace if the storm would just stop. I can have peace if the storm would just stop. Peace means the storm being over. Peace means the water is being stilled. Peace means that the wind is no longer raging, that the water is no longer like seeping over the sides. Peace means that the storm is over. I'm not sure if they remembered having that thought or not. But I hope they remember what happened next in that story. Because as the wind and the waves are like pushing that boat over and over, Jesus is just asleep and they wake him up and they say, Jesus, don't you even care that we're going to drown? And he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and the waters stop and peace came back to the Sea of Galilee. But the more important lesson that I don't know if they quite understood that evening, but I think that they learned over time, is that for many of us, we think that peace means that the storm is over. We think that peace can only come when the storm stops. When the water is glassy and the wind is still, the sky is clear, my problems are gone, my economic issues are fixed, my relationship problems are no more. We think that's what peace means, and when we ask for God for peace, most of the time we're asking for that. We think that peace can only come when the storm stops. But the lesson that Jesus had from that night on the boat was peace actually comes in the one who can stop the storm. Even if he chooses to let it rage on. I've told you this, that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you're going to have many trials and sorrows. But take heart. Because I've overcome the world. See, peace does not mean to be in a place without noise, without trouble, or hard work, but to be in the midst of all of that, and to still have a calmness in your heart, your soul, and your mind, because your eyes are on the one who could stop the storm if he wants, but even if, even if he doesn't, he still brings you that security. Okay, now back to the story about Elisha and the servant. We get to find out what Elisha means when he says that there's more on our side than on theirs. It says this in verse 17. It says, then Elisha prayed. We'll just stop there for a second. Just remember that. Keep that in mind. Elisha prayed. And this is what he prays for. 
O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha, remember, in the hillside is also where the chariots of the king of Aram are. You've got all the horses, all the warriors, all the soldiers surrounding Dothan. But Elisha just prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Those on our side. What if, it, what if when it looks like everything is bad and discontentment in your life has moved up the scale from stress to anxiety to panic, that something else is trying to give you peace and you just can't see it? And let me remind you, something can be true even if you don't see it. You are always surrounded by the unseen and what you can't see might just be protecting you from what you can. And I get it. Some of you are like, you know what? Like, this is just a bunch of, like, Christian, like, junk, right? Like, this is just, this is just like that Christian, you know, church answer that just allows you to suspend belief. And yeah, you can just be so sure about things that you can't see. But here's the deal, dude. You believe in what you can't see. And you believe that what you can't see affects you and everything about your life right now. You do. Think about this. Right now. There are 100 trillion microbes living on or inside your body right now. Every time you wash your hands, every time you eat a vegetable or swallow a pill, you acknowledge that there's an entire world that you cannot see. And imagine for a second that you could go back in time a thousand years ago and try and explain to the people sitting around, you know, the local town center, yeah, there's an entire world of microorganisms that dictate so much of our life. The reason why your aunt got sick, that was, that was bacteria. The reason why you got sick, that was a virus. The reason why you got sick is because you, you're just not washing your hands, right? Like, imagine trying to explain that a thousand years ago. It would fall on deaf ears. And the thing is, we sit here in 2019 and we say, you know what, I can't see it, I just don't believe it. There's an entire world you cannot see, and it affects everything about our lives, but science is proving that it's true. And what I'm trying to tell you as well, because in a spiritual sense, there is an entire world that you cannot see that affects everything about you. What if the thing that is causing you the most anxiety, the most stress, could actually be neutralized by something you cannot see? My point is, I think when it comes to areas like this, we need to have some humility. That even if something is unseen, it affects us. And furthermore, our inability to understand exactly how it works and what it looks like, it doesn't take away from the fact that the unseen world is still powerfully making a difference, even to us. In verse 18, it says, As the Armenian army advanced toward him, Elisha prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Okay, before I tell you the rest of the story, and it's really interesting, like, and I want to make sure I don't leave it out, I want to point out that Elisha prayed, and the next line says, so the Lord. How does prayer work? To be honest, I have no idea. Okay, like, I went to school for this kind of stuff, like, you know, I get to stand up here, so you guys think I'm an expert on it, but I'm just going to tell you right now. Um, I don't understand why sometimes I ask God for things, and he says yes, 
why sometimes I ask God for things and he says no. I don't understand why sometimes I talk to God and it's like he says, wait, but it still feels like a no until he actually answers it yes. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't get that. And how do I reconcile a belief that God is sovereign, which means like he knows exactly how everything's going to work and that he's in control of everything. How do I reconcile that belief with the fact that he still tells me, ask. And it seems in the scriptures, like if I ask, it'll change his mind. Like when I do that, am I like just simply telling him something he's already going to do? Or does he actually, like, I'll just be honest, I have no idea how it works. I think it'd be a lot like me trying to explain rocket science to like a six-year-old, which would already be humorous because I don't understand rocket science myself. But like, just bear with me for a second. I think trying to explain how something like prayer actually works to us, it's, there's a mystery to it. But here's what I do know. When I work, I work. But when I pray, God works. And this is such a critical piece to understanding, overcoming stress for the sake of peace. You know, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, this is the most highlighted verse in all the Bible. It says this, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything, which is a lot easier to say than to do, right? Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. But then you're going to experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your mind as you live in Christ Jesus. I don't understand how this works. I don't know if I'm doing it right all the time. But here's what I know. When I feel stress, when I feel anxiety, the absolute best thing to do in that moment, talk to God about it. Pray about it. Prayer is the antecedent to peace. Prayer always comes before peace. And just to be clear, like reciting words, like that's not going to do it. It doesn't solve anything. What, what happens is prayer is giving the reins over to God. It's that when we trust that God has it under control, it's like when you were a kid and you just like knew your parents were going to get you home safely. Like as a kid who grew up in Colorado and my parents would take me up into the mountains like to go skiing and, you know, during those winter drives back down into Denver, um, you know, sometimes you'd have a snowstorm like kicking up. And never as a, as a seven or eight-year-old or a nine-year-old did I ever question that my dad would be able to get me down the hill. Like there was just this blind faith and this blind trust that he could do it. And some of you grew up in homes where you, that was your situation. You just trusted that your parents had it figured out. And praying in the midst of our anxiety, in the midst of our stress, it's just simply saying, God, I trust you to figure this out. Even if I don't know how you're going to do it, or when you're going to do it, or what method you're going to use to do it, I trust you. I'm handing it over. So what happens in this story is Elisha's servant, he's panicking because he looks at all the obstacles up against. Elisha prays, and his eyes are open to the protection that he's under, and he sees the security that God has granted, and he begins to feel peace. I promise you, you're never going to experience peace without prayer. So what happens is Elisha, he prays for blindness to strike the army of the Armenians. And what happens is it, they don't actually go into a literal, like, can't see. It's like they go into a confusion. And they, they just, like, they can still be aware, but they're not necessarily, like, in the moment. And he walks up to them in this moment. He says, hey, guys, um, I just want you to know you're in the wrong place. Uh, why don't you follow me? I'm going to take you exactly where you want to go. And so Elisha, he walks this army all the way to the capital city of Samaria. 
This is the capital of Israel. And he walks them right up to the king of the Israelites. And as soon as they're all in the city, he, he has another prayer. And you might be thinking, okay, yeah, the prayer I'd be praying is like, strike them all dead, right? Like that's, that would be the prayer that I would, that would probably have. But this is what Elisha prays. He says, God, open their eyes. And they open their eyes, and their worst nightmare is realized. Okay, maybe it's their second worst nightmare, because we all know, like, the worst nightmare is that you're in junior high again, and you're naked, like, in school. Like, that's the worst nightmare. But, like, the second worst nightmare is that you're in war, and when you open your eyes, you're in the enemy city, surrounded by all of the warriors, and you're completely defenseless. And what happens, it actually says that the king of Israel looks at Elisha, and he says, should I kill them? Hey, should I kill them? It actually says it twice, like, and this is what Elisha says. He's like, no, you shouldn't kill them. Do we kill our prisoners of war? No, you should feed them and send them home. So the king actually says that he, he gave them a great feast. And they all sat around and they ate together and then he sent them home. And I'm guessing that the whole thing was so awkward um, for, for the Armenians because it says that they went home and they decided to never enter Israel again. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, only God could do something like this. Because out of all the scenarios that, like, if you had all the experts sitting around the table saying, how do you think this is going to play out? Like, best case scenario for us, like, how does this get fixed? I guarantee you none of them say, said, well, the entire army is probably going to walk into the city, um, they're going to open their eyes up, we're going to feed them a big meal, and then they're going to go home. Nobody said that was going to be the case. But think about this. Peace to the land was brought, and not a single person had to die. Their worst fears were not realized on that day. Only God can do something like this. But in the middle of this story that we looked at today is a young man who looked at his circumstances and he began to panic. And to his credit, and like to be fair to him, why wouldn't he be panicking? There's an entire enemy surrounding him. Every dream, every hope he'd had in his life was about to be over. He probably wasn't going to see tomorrow. You have an entire nation who's surrounding you, ready to kill you. Why wouldn't he panic? And I know the pious answer for us is like, well, because his eyes were open, he could see the protection around him. But how have things changed? Within minutes, his panic is replaced with peace. And how? It didn't come from escape. It didn't come from distraction. He didn't solve it by worrying about it. He didn't solve it by numbing his issues. His eyes were opened to an unseen reality that is 100% true, even if it wasn't evident. And for those of you who are walking through seasons right now of life that is just filled with uncertainty, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's finances, maybe you didn't get the job that you were hoping for, or maybe you didn't get the life you were hoping for, when you know Jesus is in the middle of it, even if you can't see him, that can still give you peace. Seeing Jesus gives peace. Peace comes not from the circumstance of the storm stopping, but in the one who can stop the storm. Furthermore, peace doesn't stand out when everything around you is calm. When the economy is good, your family is healthy, and you just got back from vacation in Hawaii, nobody's asking you, like, man, why do you seem to be doing so well in life? Right? Like, nobody asks you that question. Your peace in the middle of the storms around you is a witness that says something way louder than anything beyond you. 
what if I told you that God can bring, can bring peace to your life? You know, one of Jesus' titles is that of Prince of Peace. There's no one more qualified to provide it. What if I told you that God is powerful enough to fight your battles without you having to get involved? He knows you by name, and he's involved even in the most minute details of your life. You know, this is actually one of the reasons why I love the serenity prayer that shows up in recovery. It says, God grant me the serenity to, to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. What if I told you that God is working in the background? The key for us is the faith in who is fighting for us. We live by faith and not always by sight. You know, peace is something that I believe he wants to bring to your life. Even when the chaos and the confusion look like they're going to win, we can have faith that the Prince of Peace is fighting to produce that inside of us. And I just want you to imagine for a second, how differently would your life look? If your stress, your anxiety, and your panic was replaced by peace. That somebody could turn the volume down. And I get it. You have situations and circumstances that are way beyond your control. You can't change his mind. You can't change her mind. No amount of charm is going to get you out of your situation. Hard work isn't going to fix the economy. You can't just magically take away cancer. There's a lot of things stacked up against you. But our peace doesn't come from those things just being eliminated. It comes from finding security in the one who can eliminate it if he so chooses. And trusting that if he doesn't, it's probably for a bigger purpose. I'd like you to pray with me. God, thank you just for the opportunity to examine what it looks like to have peace. God, I pray that as we come up against life battles and as we come up against the things that, that just seem to be always standing in our way, that, that God, that, that you would eliminate those things. That God, that we could trust you to open our eyes. That God, that we could trust you to fight our battles on our behalf. That God, that we would believe that you have our best interests at heart. But also, God, I'm praying that even when it seems like our best interests are at odds with what we think is best, that you would give us the faith to trust it even in those situations and circumstances. God, I hand it all over to you and believe that you can do the impossible. And I pray in your name, amen. Hey, if you would op open up your program, pull out that connection card we were referring to a little bit earlier today. I believe that there's power when you take a next step in your spiritual journey. And I just want to highlight four next steps that I believe that every one of us should be taking in our life. The first one is I'm asking Jesus to forgive me my sins and take full control of my life for the very first time. And while you're looking at this, I want to invite our ushers to come to the front as we prepare to receive our offering as well. Um, if you've never started a relationship with God, this is where it all starts. Where you ask God, like, hey, forgive me for the, all the mistakes I've made. I know that you paid for it all on the cross. And I just ask you to take full control of my life. That's where it all starts. The second is this. I'm just going to pray for peace in my own life. This might be an experiment. This isn't necessarily you saying, like, I know that all the anxiety is going to go away because I'm praying about it. This is just you giving yourself a challenge. I'm going to pray about it. I'm just going to pray about peace this week, and we'll just see what happens. We'll see what happens when I turn this over to God. 
third one is this. I'm going to take the Romans 12, 18 challenge to live at peace as much as it depends on me. Um, here's what that verse says. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. There's somebody who might be losing sleep because of something that you said or something that you did. I'm going to challenge you. Take the Romans 12, 18 challenge. Reach out to them. Try and make it right. The fourth one is this. I'm going to focus on Matthew 6, 25 through 27 this week. In your program, there was a card that has this passage written on that card. And I'm going to ask you this week, focus on it. You don't, you might consider memorizing it. You might consider just reading it a handful of times, but focus on it this week. And it says this, that's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Some of you are losing sleep. Some of you are losing peace because you're worrying. Worrying will never fix it. Our peace doesn't come when the storm stops. It comes in the one who can stop the storm. So I'm just going to challenge you. This week, take that card. Put it on your mirror. Don't put it in your wallet. Don't put it in your purse. You're going to lose it in there. It's a black hole. We all know that. Put it, on your, put it on your mirror. Put it in your car. Look at it this week. And just allow it to sink deeper than just reading it. But Crosspoint, I love you. I'm cheering you on. For those of you who are our financial partners, thank you for everything that you do. Um, we were able to see lives change because of your generosity. Uh, for those of you who would like to become a, a giver, uh, we have ways to give on the screen. It's online, either at crosspoint.com donate or in our service right now using the buckets. Uh, but Crosspoint, no matter who you are or where you're from, uh, we want you to know that you're loved and that we believe that God has a better tomorrow for you than you're today. But that starts when you take a next step. So let me pray for you. And as soon as I say amen, we'll pass the buckets. We'll sing one last song and get you out of here. God, I pray one last time just for you to fill this place, that we would experience your peace in a way that we never have before, and that, God, that we would see you change our lives from the inside out. We pray so in your son Jesus' name.